You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet here in Greeley, Colorado, or at least I think I am in Greeley, Colorado. Should I doubt whether I am in fact sitting at my computer or whether this is the matrix? What is real? What is reality? Are you real? Who am I talking to? Do I actually have any listeners? Do I have a podcast? Or am I just talking to myself and imagining that I am having a podcast and that anybody's going to listen to my podcast? I think that I do exist. I think we should just jump into the topic, shall we? Today we're going to talk about Rene Descartes and his famous quote, I think therefore I am. J.P. Chavez writes to me, I was listening to a podcast on Carl Truman's rise and triumph of the modern self. They pick up some aspects that Truman himself doesn't go into in the book. Namely, how Rousseau specifically with the idea, I think therefore I am, how that kind of introspection influenced the church. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how those ideas have influenced the church both in the past when those ideas started to be purported and today. So thank you, JP. Uh, For anybody who hasn't heard me talk about Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self before, go out and get yourself a copy of Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It is an excellent read. It's very well written, very tightly organized, very thorough, very well researched, very clear, very easy to understand, and also very illuminating as far as understanding modern philosophy and the world that we live in and how did we come to think of ourselves this way. How we think of ourselves influences how we think of the people around us. It influences how we think of the societies and communities that we form, the churches that we form, and how we engage in church politics, polity, church government. It engages our academic experience in meaningful ways, the way we send our children off to be educated, the way we educate our children. Everything, everything is downstream of what we think of ourselves in the modern world. This did not always used to be. You can credit, at least in the modern West, Rene Descartes with having posited the one thing, the one rock-solid foundation on which we could build all of the rest of our knowledge and experiences and philosophy and politics and everything. Business of the polis, of the city, Everything was to be based off of this certainty we had or could have that we exist. We exist. I don't know what else exists, Descartes says. I don't know for sure if my senses are deceiving me. Do these other things around me actually exist? Does this microphone, for instance, in my case, Descartes didn't say that, but I'm saying that. Does this microphone that I think I'm talking into exist? Well, the very fact that I am questioning whether it exists proves that I myself exist. So I may not know whether this microphone is real. I may not know whether the computer that I 
think it appears, although maybe it's just a deceiving evil spirit, a demon who is misleading me, it appears that Audacity is up on my desktop and that the audio is being recorded as I speak. I can see these blue lines up and down showing me a graphical representation of the audio that's being captured. But I don't know for sure until I stop recording and play it back. But even then, what did I play back? Maybe this is all a dream. Maybe this is the Matrix. At a minimum, I know that just the very fact that I am asking these kinds of questions, that I am asking what is real and questioning, radical doubt of everything, deconstructing everything, the very fact that I am engaged in that kind of thought exercise proves that I exist. That's the conclusion that Descartes comes to. And then everything else can be built up around that. Well, where it gets dicey is downstream of this idea that Descartes comes up with in the early 17th century. He publishes these ideas. He spends quite a long time at the end of his life uh, living amongst the Dutch. And when I say quite a long time, what I mean is that he is embraced by the Dutch, he is given safe haven by the Dutch, and he's able to do his work in some measure of peace. And what you might not know, if you only read books on philosophy and only look at him from a philosophical standpoint, what you might not appreciate is that Descartes and the Dutch have an interesting relationship by virtue of how inclusive the Dutch were of everybody. You didn't have to be doctrinally sound, according to the Dutch, in order to live among the Dutch and be treated peacefully. The current cosmopolitan feel, or the way we even define what is and is not cosmopolitan in America, based off of our quintessential uh, American city, New York City, that comes to us from the Dutch. So if you, want, if you want to have some idea of what the Amsterdam that Descartes fled to or moved to or took refuge in was like, look at New York City, look at the way that diverse ideas are tolerated, and look at the way that anything threatening that open and inclusive mindset and attitude is reacted to with hostility so much of the time. Look at New York City if you want to understand better Amsterdam because New York City, before it was called New York City, before the English took it from the Dutch, was known as New Amsterdam. So, fun little fact for you. Descartes going to Amsterdam was a, a tacit admission, if you do nothing else, that he was concerned about the level of toleration he would receive in the rest of Europe. Well, so also, there's a downstream effect of going to Amsterdam, and that is that you're surrounded by all these other people who have moved to Amsterdam for similar reasons. They are also somewhat cast out, castaways, cast outs on this little uh, island of liberty in an ocean of uh, doctrinal rigidity of various flavors. 
right? There are various oceans of doctrinal rigidity where you're just not free to ask any question that pops into your head and explore that because you might come up against church teaching. You might come up against the local prince or duke or king or whatever. And Descartes wanted to be free to develop his philosophy, so he goes to Amsterdam. But if you read Carl Truman's book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, you know that modern philosophy is not just all about being selfish. I mean, that we have to define what is selfishness here. I would argue that modern philosophy downstream of Descartes, I think therefore I am, is inherently selfish. I don't know that Descartes intended for it to be inherently selfish, but he might have because our hearts can be exceedingly deceitful. Whatever it is that he says outright in his books, in his writings, that is a separate piece from what was really going on in his heart of hearts. And he might not have been a student of his own heart in some of these things. But it's very convenient. It's very convenient to embrace a philosophy in which everything else is to be questioned and deconstructed and doubted. We should have this radical doubt by which we don't trust our senses. We don't trust what other people tell us. We want to only believe those things which we find to be true within ourselves. And I'll read for you a small little quote that is on the Wikipedia page for René Descartes. It comes from his Discourse on the Method. And it says, I entirely abandoned the study of letters, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that of which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world. I spent the rest of my youth traveling, visiting courts and armies, mixing with people of diverse temperaments and ranks, gathering various experiences, testing myself in the situations which fortune offered me, and at all times reflecting upon whatever came my way to derive some profit from it. So you look at this, this small paragraph, and you find everything you need to know about where he was coming from, his point A and his point B. And then if you take that line segment and just extend it out ahead of itself, you find where this is today. And it isn't just Descartes because other philosophers build on what it is that he has to say. Subsequent philosophers, the whole modern way of thinking builds itself on such foundations as this, this sentiment. But this is a repudiation and a rejection of divine revelation. Whether he says it or not, it is a tacit rejection of divine revelation as a way of knowing. He posits in his books that perhaps our senses are lying to us. We think that we see this shiny red apple on the table in front of us, but it could just be an evil spirit deceiving us, like a mirage sort of. It could be an evil spirit deceiving us, and that red apple we think we see on that table that we think we see is not really a red apple. Is it really red? Maybe it's red to me, and it looks like blue to you. How do I know objectively what it is? Everything is open to question, a radical doubt, a deconstruction, and only by 
questioning everything incessantly, constantly, all the time, can I arrive at the closest approximation to truth? And at a bare minimum, the foundation is that I am a thinking being. I, as a human being, think and do all of this doubting. Therefore, I am. And there's jokes that have to do with this, philosophy jokes that go something like, you know, Descartes walks into a bar and the bartender asks, would you like a drink? And Descartes says, I think not. And then he immediately disappears, right? Like he just ceases to exist. You know, and the funny joke in that is, well, what if you're not thinking, right? What if you're not thinking, do you cease to exist? There's some dangerous implications as to who we consider (laughs) to be thinking rational beings and if we validate the existence or non-existence of ourselves and other people based on the fact of thinking or the quality of thinking, it can become a slippery slope in a hurry. You know, I think this is part of why it's easy sometimes for people to justify abortion is they can't imagine this little creature growing in its mother's womb has any thinking capacity. What's it thinking about? What would it be thinking about? Right? We have no knowledge of that, and so therefore we assume it is not thinking, therefore it does not exist. Until it gets out and opens its eyes, that little boy, that little girl, and sees the world and begins thinking, it doesn't really have human existence. And because we can't see it, and because we have no knowledge, no ability to relate to the kinds of thinking and thoughts that it might be having in utero, we're just going to say, that it doesn't exist. That's true for far too many people that that becomes the way that they justify abortion, which is murder. The other piece of this that gets tricky is with regards to gender theory and sexuality. I think, therefore, I am. That's all I know. And I doubt and question and deconstruct everything else, including, but not limited to, gender and sexuality. How many genders are there? Well, how do you know there's only two? How do you know there's only male and female? What about hermaphrodites? What about homosexuals? What about homosexuality in nature among animals? What about all this, right? Well, I don't know, but I know that I exist and I know that I'm thinking about this and I know that person's thinking about this. And if I can only look, as Descartes says, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that of which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world, by that he means, you know, the great book of the world being the world, right? Go out and observe, like National Geographic on the savannah, I'm going to take my, my camera, I'll take my videographer, and we're going to videotape these lions hunting these wildebeests. And that is how we will know what is true. If we go out and we have experiences with a wide range of people and personalities and cultures and things like that, then that will help us to know what is true as close as we possibly can. Well, that, my friends, within Christian teaching and life and thought is known as general revelation. And it's separate. It's distinct from divine revelation. Within God's word, we have divine revelation. All scripture is God-breathed, according to the scriptures. And the modern mind rejects this and says, well, wait a second, that's circular. Okay, If it is circular, does that make it false? Or are you just rejecting it because you don't like it? You don't like that truth claim. 
and you reject it in favor of a truth claim which is more convenient to your passions, your ambitions, your desires, your interests. At the root of this is a very common temptation, which is to exalt ourselves, to make ourselves very wise, to become wise in our own eyes. You can get confused in reading Descartes and reading about Descartes and looking at modern philosophy because it makes so much of doubt. And you would think that that's a kind of humility, but it isn't necessarily. It isn't necessarily humility to ask, for instance, what is truth? When you're Pontius Pilate and you're standing before the sinless, blameless, spotless Lamb of God and you know that he's not guilty and you're going to condemn him to death anyways because you've got a crowd shouting crucify him. You've got a political football on your hands that you need to pass off or else you're going to get sacked with it. You ask, what is truth? Is that a question of sincere longing to know or is that a question of convenience? Well, it seems pretty clear to me and I don't think I have some evil spirit, some evil demon introducing this doubt into my head, it seems pretty clear to me that that is a question of willful ignorance, not a question of genuine interest in wisdom and understanding. The tricky thing is, read Ecclesiastes. And I thank God that Ecclesiastes is in the scriptures. Sometimes Ecclesiastes is hard to get your arms around and really understand because Solomon asks, the same event happens to the wise man and the fool. What is the good of being so wise? No matter how wise you become, the same thing is going to happen to you that happens to the foolish man. What's the point of being virtuous? The same event happens to the righteous man as happens to the wicked. Why bother? In fact, Sometimes there's more suffering here on earth for righteousness and for wisdom than there is in folly and wickedness. And I see wicked men prospering and I see fools content with their folly going along oblivious to the repercussions. Vanity of vanities, a chasing after the wind, Solomon says. Only the book doesn't end there. If you only read that far and you do a random opening to the middle of Ecclesiastes, you might think that's all there is to the story. But if you read to the end, and if you read carefully, and if you're really diligent, not just trying to grasp at whatever you want to hear <laughs> as soon as you hear it, Solomon makes clear that there is a benefit in wisdom, and there is a benefit in righteousness. When God is in the center of, of our universe. When we factor in God, observing our conduct and our way of life, when we factor in that he rewards those who do good, he rewards wisdom, when we factor that in, then life does have meaning. The pursuit of righteousness and wisdom does have meaning. And that's the tricky thing because Descartes certainly was thought of in his time. And now in every college and university philosophy department, Descartes is highly esteemed because he is seen as central to 
the way of thinking that is du jour these days. He is thought of as wise, and I would say he thought of himself as wise when he makes a statement like, I think, therefore I am. I know nothing else except that my existence is predicated on my embracing this radical doubt, this radical questioning and deconstruction of everything. Only what I can learn from general revelation and from introspection matters and is reliable. Well, think about when he's writing this. He's writing this in the early 1600s. He is writing this and then living, what, 20 years in the Netherlands? He lives in Amsterdam in the early 1600s, and you still have quite a lot of holdover Protestant versus Catholic nonsense in Europe. You can see easily the modern mind growing out of a exasperated contempt for that grappling with the questions of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. You can see Descartes coming to this position of radical doubt from having heard the arguments from the Protestant side and the Catholic side and realizing, well, wait a second, they can't both be right. And also, depending on where I am, representatives from either party might want to kill me if I don't perfectly parrot everything that they believe is true. And so Descartes, in part, and the European mind, the Western mind, the modern mind, grows out of a collective contempt for this exhausting back and forth between Catholics and Protestants. And at the end of it, at the end of that rainbow, the pot of gold is, I am a thinking being And therefore, I know I at least exist. I may not know who God is. I may not know whether his word is true. I may not know what to do with divine revelation and all these competing truth claims. But why stop at Catholic versus Protestant? Why not extend that to Christian versus Muslim versus Hindu versus Buddhist versus Confucian versus... (laughs) Right? I mean, you, you can go on and on and on. And then at the end of it, just say... Well, I don't know, but I know that I don't know. And the fact of my not knowing and the fact of my wrestling with this proves that I exist. And that at least is my foundation. So I'm going to build off of the fact that I know that I exist. There's a word for your existence being the center of your knowledge and your understanding. That word is selfishness. And the tricky thing is that we all are like fish in water who don't know we're wet. We really are, myself included. We don't realize the extent to which this way of looking at the scriptures has clouded our ability to understand what the scriptures are trying to tell us. If we never call into question, (laughs) here's where you take that radical doubt just another step further And you ask, okay, why do you embrace this philosophy, right? Somebody thinks they're very radical, questioning everything. 
You want to get really radical? How about you turn that back in on itself and ask, why do you feel the need to question everything? Ooh. Watch their head explode. Right? That's selfish. When I go to a Bible study in high school, and the question when we open up God's Word and we look at the text is, what does this mean to you? I know that I am sitting amongst young men and young women who have been raised in an education system which is thoroughly secular, thoroughly humanistic, thoroughly Descartes in its approach to divine revelation, general revelation, and the conception of the self. What does this passage mean to you? No, 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 no. Wait a second. Nope. (laughs) Full stop. Don't start with that question. Embedded in that question is a statement. And that statement is that that is all we can know, is that we are thinking beings. And that the self is the sum of all things. Man is the measure of all things. At the center of that question is a repudiation of objective truth being transcendent. At the root of that question may just be godlessness, honestly. And what I mean is, it's rather hubristic and self-absorbed, despite how it might appear at first blush, to say, I question everything, I doubt everything. I just don't know what's true. Oh, wow. He's so humble. He's so humble. Is he? Is he really humble? Or is he out to lunch on purpose? And he doesn't want to come back. And he doesn't want to meet his responsibilities. And he doesn't want to suffer. And he doesn't want to embrace this. And he doesn't want to submit to God's authority in his life. He's a rebel. A rebel with or without a cause. A rebel nevertheless does not like transcendent truth, does not like objectivity. So he asks the question when he reads the text, what does this mean to me? Because it's all about me. Because I am the only thing that I am absolutely certain exists. Welcome to the desert of the real, as Morpheus says in The Matrix. What is real? What is The Matrix? Well, for all you know, it is a very complicated computer program And you, in real, real world, are actually plugged into a machine and you're being used like the Energizer Bunny to power all these little robots. For all you know, this is all a dream. A dream within a dream. This is Inception. Am I dreaming or is this the waking world? Is this real? Pop culture, if you think about it, is chock full of these sorts of questions and various ways of exploring this root idea. And insofar as the premise is that man is the measure of all things and I think therefore I am, you should recognize a kind of godlessness, a tacit godlessness inherent to that. And by so doing, you can still engage with that material And have it not be godless entirely, just because by virtue of you asking the question, well, what does God's words have to say about this? What does God's word speak to that question that they're asking, that exploration they're making, that statement 
they've just said is the hill they're going to die on. If I know nothing else, I know that I am a being who doubts everything. It's hubristic, actually. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then when you fast forward to Romans, you read that God gave them up. They became wise in their own eyes. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and God gave them up. God gave them up. What a terrifying statement. Perhaps the reason why we in the modern world are so confused sometimes has everything to do with God giving us up because we're wise in our own eyes. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, the scriptures say. We should not confuse doubting everything for humility, and we should not confuse a dogged determination that there is transcendent truth and we can know it and we can live according to it, we can communicate it, we can understand it, that that is actually arrogance, that that is actually hubris. No, 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 not so fast. You want to radically doubt everything. How about you radically doubt how you arrived at that conclusion for just a minute? God's word is predicated on the assumption that truth is a thing, for one, that it's knowable. You could say, as Descartes does, he goes into this extended thought exercise. You could say, well, I, don't, I can't know what's true. How can I possibly know what's true? Well, I'll tell you. If God has given you capacity, if God has given you the ability to know what is true, simple. Well, I can't, Descartes might say, I can't find evidence that God exists for a fact as I travel the world like National Geographic filming penguins on Antarctic ice, swimming with sharks off the coast of South Africa. I can't find God in general revelation. Well, perhaps I could direct your attention to Romans. The truth about God has been made plainly visible, and we suppress that truth. We suppress it. We don't want to believe. We don't believe because we don't want to believe. A certain man says to Jesus at one point in the Gospels, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. We are not that man when we suppress the truth that is plain and obvious in general revelation. And there is general revelation that points to the existence of a creator. The creation points to the existence of a creator who orchestrated all these things, who designed in delicate detail all of the things that we can see, however powerful our microscope or telescope is, that creator exists. God exists. Therefore, I am. That is a markedly different starting position in comparison to postmodern and modern philosophy, which is predicated on our existence. Consider the way that the book of Genesis starts. Just the first few words are so absolutely profound and meaningful. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God created, not our radical doubt, creating meaning out of nothing, not 
us creating philosophies and worlds like in the movie Inception, creating entire worlds in a dream state. And what's the difference between the dream and reality as far as our brain is concerned? Why not take the blue pill, Democrats? Why not embrace the illusion if it's more pleasant than reality? We do not get to create ex nihilo. We get to operate within the creation that God has made ex nihilo. We don't have the ability to create ex nihilo. All we have is what God gives us, which already exists. And our contentedness or discontentedness with that is not just about us. We do not belong to ourselves. We were bought with a price. And as Christians, we should not allow this kind of selfishness, this self-absorption to seep into the way that we approach topics. That's very, very difficult because, again, we're fish in water who don't realize we're wet most of the time. When you come to Bible studies your whole life, when you listen to sermons your whole life, when you listen to the radio, Christian radio your whole life, and popular Christian music your whole life, and you read popular Christian authors your whole life, and all of them implicitly when not explicitly are reinforcing this idea that man is the measure of all things, and I think therefore I am, And what does this passage mean to me? It quickly becomes very difficult to take a step back and say, well, wait a second, regardless of what it means to me or what I feel about it, because that's the only thing I trust anymore is my feelings, what does it actually say? Because I believe in transcendent truth. Because I believe in a transcendent God. When we don't believe in a transcendent objective reality, outside of ourselves, outside of our own wishes and desires, we become extraordinarily conceited and ignorant and blind. And we leave no room to believe in a transcendent God. And in that state of ignorance and blindness, we can't know God and we can't represent him well. When the scriptures begin with, in the beginning, God we do well to pay attention to the significance of everything that follows. Who's the main character in the Bible? Who is the Bible about? The modern self says, this is a book about me. This is about me. This is about how much God loves me. Well, okay. It is about that secondarily, but not primarily. This book is not primarily about you. This book is primarily about God. This book is primarily about the creator, who he is. He's the main character in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. He is the main character in Revelation. And every book between, God is the main character. He's the subject. And when we selfishly, wickedly, sinfully say, well, I don't like that. Okay. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Good luck. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you don't like it. I might not like that I can't just stand in the middle of a busy freeway and if a Mack truck hits me going 80 miles an hour, I'm going to feel it. 
briefly. I might not like that. It doesn't change the fact. That fact is transcendent. My self-indulgent musings and deconstruction of the universe and reality. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. I think, therefore, I am needs to be true in a subordinate sort of a way. There's nothing wrong with the statement in and of itself in the proper context, but in the context of rejecting special revelation, God's word, it's a very dangerous position. It's like floating on the ocean with the driftwood of your own ship because you questioned whether the ship existed and you had a cannon and you thought, well, I'm just going to point this cannon downward in the middle of the ship and see what happens. And now here I am. The ship is in pieces all over the place and I am floating without rudder, without sail on the ocean, but at least I'm still alive. Well, yeah, and you're a fool. You're an idiot. You blew up your ship. The ship of meaning could have taken you somewhere better, but you loved folly instead of wisdom, and you loved wickedness instead of righteousness, and you loved darkness instead of light, because you really, really want to be able to call into question, hath God said at every turn? You want to talk about radical doubt? It started with the serpent in the garden. Hath God said? Did God really say? Did he really say that? Yeah, he did, actually. That would have been the proper response. Yeah, actually. Not, you make a good point. No, he doesn't make a good point. He wants to destroy you. That's why he's trying to introduce this radical doubt. He only cares about himself and his ambitions, and you are a means to an end. He's not asking this question for your good. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He has his best interest at heart, his ambitions. We do well to think of Descartes accordingly. However highly esteemed he is, he was saying things that people with itching ears wanted to hear and still want to hear. It's convenient to conceive of the universe without any need for God and special revelation It's convenient to sidestep the whole Catholic-Protestant Reformation versus Counter-Reformation, Christian versus Muslim versus Jew versus Buddhist versus et cetera, et cetera. It's convenient to just throw your hands up and say, well, you're all wrong. You're all equally mistaken. Who can know? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Ooh, wait a second. That's dangerous, and it's not true, and it's godless, and it's foolish. The truth will find you out eventually, but by all means, choose the state you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is it okay to question how do we know what is true? What is true? How do we know that that's true? How much of that was our feelings, and are our feelings predicated on something made of firmer, truer stuff? It's okay to ask those kinds of questions, but the devil is very much the details and the conclusions we come to can and often do lead us down the wrong road. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's plan is not 
for us to just float on driftwood through eternity, knowing nothing except that we ourselves exist. I mean, here's the tell, and we'll finish off with this. I'll conclude this episode. The tell is that believing could also be an indication that you exist. Doubting is not the only way you can prove that you exist. Believing is also a way you can prove that you exist. And this is a rather silly, trivial, foolish thing to land on and insist on going no further from. Descartes says in one of his three essays that he published in 1637 as part of Treatise on the World, which he abandoned plans to publish in its entirety after Galileo was condemned by the Italian Inquisition, I believe, if memory serves, for his heliocentric theory. Instead of believing that the Earth was the center of the universe, he posited that our sun was the center of our galaxy and that our galaxy is not even the center of the universe as it happens. But Descartes finds out that Galileo is being condemned and he decides not to publish Treatise on the World because he conceivably sees how that will end up for him based on what just happened to Galileo. But he says in one of the essays that make up Treatise on the World, which he did publish, quote, the first was never to accept anything for true, which I did not know to be such, that is to say, carefully to avoid precipitancy and prejudice and to comprise nothing more in my judgment than what was presented to my mind so clearly and distinctly as to exclude all ground of doubt. That puts us in a precarious position, depending on how we define our terms. And a whole lot of people in the modern world have seized on this as a way of liberating themselves from social constraints, from religious constraints, from God. And they have to have a reckoning in order to be dissuaded And I'm not saying they need a reckoning from us to where we carry out some kind of an inquisition ourselves. What I am saying is pain is a teacher and we can do this the easy way or we can do this the real easy way. That Mack truck can either have hit you in your imagination as you think forward on where this is going if you continue to stand in the road and it continues on its current trajectory at its present rate of speed It can hit you in your imagination as you think ahead a little bit and then you get out of the way before it actually hits you in fact or it can hit you in fact. But then how how much are you learning the lesson after it's hit you? You're not around to enjoy the benefits of having learned your lesson. And maybe that's all for the best. You had it coming. You have no one to blame but yourself if you stubbornly stand in the road saying, well, I'm not content. I'm not satisfied that that Mack truck is actually going to kill me if I stand in its way as it travels. So also, how we choose to be discontent with evidences and proofs and portrayals of what's true, what's good, that is on our own heads, be it. But I say, we don't just prove our existence by doubting. We also prove our existence by believing. And it's a silly thing to get hung up on Do I exist? Does anything exist? That might just be evidence when we are stuck on that, that 
we have hearts, foolish hearts, that are darkened because our deeds are dark and we love darkness. But there's grace for that. There's grace in God's goodness and his love for us. None of that takes him by surprise. It's not as though he looks and he's just puzzled and confused like, oh, man, what's going on with this guy? Right? No, he knows. He sees. He sees not just the number of hairs on your head and knows the number. He sees your heart's desire. He sees your mind. Everything is laid bare and naked before God. There's no hiding it from him. And yet, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is grace for our wickedness, and there's redemption with confession and repentance. And there's life, right? There's life. There's everlasting life that doesn't just begin when we die. There's everlasting life that begins immediately upon the reception of that salvation. That saving work begins the hour I first believe. It's interesting about philosophy too. When you read the book of James in the New Testament, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Interesting. There again, note the contrast between I think therefore I am and if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. There's a world of difference. There's a universe of difference. You don't even exist in the same universe anymore when you embrace one of those versus the other because every evidence, every fact, every reasoned argument is either closed off to you or wide open for your apprehension and comprehension based on whether you go one direction or the other at that fork in the road. I would encourage you to listen to James and not follow the example of Descartes. But I got to leave it there. I got to go to work. I think, therefore I do. Thank you for listening. As always, thank you, JP, for positing that question and asking for my thoughts on that. It's a great question. Uh, Again, audience, ladies, gentlemen, boys and girls, men and women, males and females, all two genders, check out Carl R. Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It will really help you understand where we're at much better than I can put it. I can't do justice to how good his book is. So just go read it for yourself. Read it more than once. I think I shall too. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.